0: the more you learn the less you know this is not as counterintuitive as it sounds the more data you have the more information the higher your ceiling of knowledge you become aware of how little you actually know as you imbibe more information And that informs the way you see the world and what you do as a result. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is about filling up the space between the facts we have and our ceiling of understanding. It's one thing to read the news, to know facts and data, but it's another thing to understand it in context. That's what this podcast is about. By unspooling a story and tracing the many tendrils of context, we'll explore the bigger concepts that inform what's happening around us. We'll try to understand not just what's happening, but why on earth we should care to begin with, how this information impacts us, and maybe even invites us to change. We'll identify some disparate dots and connect them. And at the end of each episode, we'll hopefully end up with a better idea of what the bigger picture looks like. I want to start this episode, this first episode of the podcast, by talking about a word that I came across recently, contextualism. Now, contextualism is one of those really wonderful words that you discover that describes something that you didn't realize you were having trouble describing before. Contextualism refers to a collection of ideas that orbit around the concept that context matters. So it means you can say something is right in one context, but that same thing can be wrong in another. This applies to things like ethics, but also in terms of our understanding of truth. It means that I can refer to myself as I, and so can you, and we can both be right, we can both be I, according to our own individual context. It also means we can apply different standards to the way that we perceive the world. A great example of this is actually given on the Wikipedia page for contextualism. If we're speaking as skeptics, as people who question everything, question the nature of reality and our ability to perceive it, you can't just get away with saying something like, I have hands. Because for for myriad reasons, you may not, you may not be able to actually say definitively that you have hands because from the skeptical standpoint, it may be that your perception is flawed or what you deem to be your perception is actually the result of some other mechanism. And so in that context, the context of a skeptic saying, I have hands is something that doesn't fly. Whereas if you're sitting at a coffee shop with some friends and you say something like, I have hands, it's a weird thing to say, certainly. But you can say that with authority, because in that context, sitting in a coffee shop with friends, you are not probably questioning the nature of reality. Instead, you are sitting in a shared reality. You have all decided, by virtue of being there and existing in a coffee shop and operating in modern society in a consumerist culture that allows you to exchange money for coffee and sit in this space, you are saying, we have this shared acceptance that this is real. This is tangible reality. This is something that we have agreed to, if not completely dogmatically agree with, we are accepting it for the purposes of these circumstances. The right here, the right now, we are going to agree that this is real. And so it's the same statement in two different contexts that we can agree or not agree to accept. So it's the exact same statement But depending on the circumstance, depending on where it is spoken and in which context it is spoken, it can mean two very different things. It can mean an infinite number of different things because, depending on the context in which you speak those words, they will have completely different meaning. And contextualism is the understanding of that. It is, in short, the understanding that the same thing, the same collection of data, Can mean very different things depending on the circumstances depending on the variables the environment the people involved etc i love this word for a lot of reasons but one of the reasons that i love it is that it allows us to question things to be more like skeptics while also allowing us to exist in real life because there is a point where questioning everything pulls you away from the shared maybe dream that we all live in this accepted reality that we have and as a result maybe you're not able to enjoy some of the benefits of living in that shared dream the concept of contextualism then allows you to enjoy the benefits of questioning these things on the larger scale and maybe eventually coming to a different conclusion but then in your day-to-day still exist in that shared environment that shared reality that we've all agreed to exist within It allows us to question without giving up all of the things that we're questioning. Which is good, because I tend to think that we're all better off when we are able to see ourselves as philosophers. If not in the scholastic, academic sense, at least in the day-to-day, I'm going to question my life and my choices and my reality sense. We are much more capable of finding a path That works for us individually for our wants and needs and hopes and dreams and backgrounds and contexts when we're able to question those things as we live them. So this idea, which is very much akin to the idea of being able to hold two opposing concepts in your mind at the same time and accept them both as possible truths, is very valuable in that way. It allows us to both live and always be moving towards what might be a better life, what might be a better way of seeing the world and existing. There's this website called Wikilooper, uh, with no E in Looper. It's, I'll link to this in the show notes, but it's a really fascinating project. All it is is an aggregate of all of the Wikipedia pages, and what it does, it's, it's kind of a game. You choose any page, you choose any topic on Wikipedia, And then it traces that topic back through the links of other pages that it's connected to, eventually finding the biggest page that it's attached to. So the most core concept or thought that every single page on Wikipedia leads back to. And it became kind of a game among the people who built it and the people who found it initially to see how many steps between each of these pages it took before you got back to the page for philosophy. There was even a page later published of all of the links, and there weren't many, all of the links to different pages that did not lead to philosophy at some point. The point being that everything, even the most mundane, seemingly completely separate topic, eventually leads back to philosophy in some way, not just on Wikipedia, but in life. Every decision that we make, every purchase that we make, every job that we take, every sexual encounter that we have, Something about that leads back to philosophy, the way that we see the world, the way that we think of reality. And so being able to understand that and being able to see ourselves as people who are capable of not just questioning that, but exploring it and sharing what we learn, being able to do that empowers us in so many different ways and allows us to have much deeper, larger scale conversations than we might otherwise have. Now, not everybody is as excited about the concept of contextualism as I am. A lot of professional philosophers, in fact, are not big fans because it's often correlated or conflated with uh, the idea of relativism, and in particular, moral relativism. And what moral relativism is, what it says, is essentially that there is no right or wrong. There's no inherent good or bad. Uh, There's no good or evil. There's no black or white. And when you're looking for answers, when you're looking to try to explain the world, the idea that there is no right answer would be understandably frustrating. The idea that no matter how much work you can do, you can never say this is good and this is bad in an absolute sense. Even setting aside the fact that we would first have to develop the conception of good and bad and right and wrong in order to have this conversation. If you look at humanity and civilization and different cultures throughout time, we've considered very different things to be good and bad, and the idea that we in this time period just happened to have found the right answers, whereas everybody else throughout history was evil or bad in some absolute way, is ridiculous. I mean, how likely is it that we in this one time period got all the answers right and everybody else got them wrong? It's a concept that just doesn't hold water. This doesn't mean that we can't still have opinions about what is good and what is bad. I think most people in the 21st century would agree that it's not a good idea to marry off children like young teenagers. But you go back a few hundred years and that's not the case. That was accepted societal tradition. That's just the way that things were. It made perfect sense. That to them is good. Today, it is bad. In the future, who knows what it will be? So to put our collective foot down and decide that anything is absolutely good or bad is to date ourselves horribly. It is to make concrete the biases of this point in time and this location in time and say, I am right and everything else is wrong. And in doing so, we show our absolute short-sightedness, We show our inability to look around and see that that can't possibly be the case. And we show that we lack the peripheral vision as well to understand that this is not how things have been in the past. It may not be how they will be in the future. And a good many of the things that we hold as good today will probably be looked upon in the same way that we look upon marrying off young teenagers. Being able to recognize this to have that context, and then to embrace contextualism and to say that with everything we need to take into consideration, all of the adjacent ideas and the ideas that are adjacent to those ideas is vitally important to understanding what's going on. And unfortunately, the way that a lot of us consume, uh, particularly consume the news, but also other data and facts and such, is just to take the points that are fed to us and that's the easy way, and that's the way that we're encouraged to do it, but far more often we get the, the real information, we get the full scoop, we get the real big picture only if we take that extra step ourselves. If we decide we are philosophers, we are capable of assessing the situation, and we are capable of establishing and recognizing the additional context that exists, even if it's not offered up to us on a silver platter that's what this podcast is about not just having access to facts but trying to know trying to understand trying to really grok things on a deep level so that then we can better understand the world we can better understand other people in that world and hopefully better understand ourselves and our place in that world as well Mm -hmm. So what I'd like to do each episode is take an article or some other piece from the internet or elsewhere and use that as a starting point for a larger conversation. Because as much as a lot of these pieces are very well researched and very well investigated and in a lot of cases very well written, quite relevant to somebody who wants to learn about a given topic, they're also incredibly limited in scope out of necessity. First of all, people aren't going to read something that is a thousand pages long, or that meanders constantly and deviates from the point consistently. But also because when you explore on that grander scale, when you take a step back and look at the big picture, it's unlikely that you will come up with definitive answers. And so all this could ever be is a journey. You're not going to necessarily reach a destination, and that is incredibly unfulfilling to some people. And for me, it's not. I tend to take a lot of joy in the journey, and I think the journey in this case will be the unspooling. It will be taking them apart and unraveling them a bit, but the word unravel implies that it's chaotic and it's a mess. And the way that I prefer to look at it is that we are taking this larger sum and then slowly but surely unwinding it. And as the different strings and different threads move off in different directions, We are very calmly and consciously and intentionally following some of them to take us wherever they will take us. And So to get us started, I've got a piece that I really enjoyed from The Atlantic, which is just theatlantic.com. This is available online. It's called China's Twilight Years, and you can either Google that or you can find a link to it in the show notes. And a couple of things jumped out at me about this article. One is that China and the concept of modern superpowers to begin with, and that level of politicking that's occurring around it. It's incredibly fascinating, but it's also something that touches so many different areas of interest. It's not simply economic, it's not some, simply military, it's not simply geopolitical, it's not just geographic, it's not something that's technological. It's all of these things and more. It's something that serves as both a microcosm and in some ways a macrocosm of different things that are happening in all of these different areas. And so first a quick overview of what we are talking about when we talk about China in relation to the United States. The first thing that a lot of people who read the news in the United States would probably tell you is that We are living in an era where it's the high point of American civilization and we are just waiting for the next shoe to drop, at which point China will overtake us and will become the new global superpower. Or, failing that, they will become the next Soviet Union and we will be locked, just as we were during the Cold War, in a standoff that is both nuclear, or potentially nuclear in nature... But it would also potentially be the harbinger of something brand new, which would be a civilization that has something like four and a half times the population of the United States, and in a lot of ways is intertwined with the current dominant geopolitical superpower and military superpower in the world, the only superpower in the world by most measures, and as a result superseding them in a way that would not have been seen before, because in in modern history, We don't have any examples of this happening, this scale, this level of technological sophistication and this level of global intertwining where we are all kind of connected because we're all invested in each other's successes and failures and we're all so connected inextricably in terms of communication and information and travel in a way that we never were before as well. And so some people look at this slow-moving disaster, if you're looking at it from that direction, from you know the perspective of a United States citizen, and they watch it with the same sort of horror that you might watch a growing zombie apocalypse or something, where people are not looking forward to it, it's not something that they want, but they also consider it to be this unmovable force, this unavoidable disaster that's going to happen So we'd better prepare for it. We'd better get as scared as possible as a result of this impending doom. And that perception, that idea that this is something that is inevitable, plays into the hands of almost everybody except for China. It seems like it would be the opposite of that. It seems like this inevitability of superpower status and of becoming the dominant player in the world would be wonderful, except that it's happening to them right now. And right now, despite the fact that they have this perception behind them with a sort of momentum, they are not in the best of position to play into that potential future. And as a result, because we're looking at it through this lens of inevitability, if they fail to live up to any of those standards, it looks horrible. It's promising too much and under-delivering rather than the opposite. And so the, the cold water poured over this argument, this idea that there's this inevitable change-up in the, the power balance of the world, is that if there was a conventional war today, the United States would completely clobber China. And it, that's not an insult to China. They've grown incredibly quickly, and they do have a very impressive military might, and you know, anything could actually happen because of the scale of the weaponry and the different types of weapon and new weapons, the asymmetrical warfare that's involved. But in terms of pure sophistication of the technology and the amount of money being spent on the military, and frankly the experience that the United States has militarily around the world and in our own asymmetrical warfare as well, it wouldn't even be a contest. I mean China's been investing like crazy, but They still barely have the capability of keeping their air force in the air for more than a few minutes at a time. And they do not have the naval force that we have that allows us to control the waterways around the world. And that in large part is what has given us the status of kind of global policemen, at least according to certain people, because we are considered to be that force that keeps things safe, at least for our interests and those of our allies. Similarly, uh, the so-called Chinese miracle that has been happening with their economy has been slowing down and obviously slowing down. And that's not good because by a lot of different estimations, the numbers that they were showing to begin with, these wonderful numbers in terms of this rampant growth of their economy and the increase in their middle class and all of these other metrics that they were using to gauge success, These have been widely considered to be doctored numbers because it's an authoritarian government. They're able to largely control what type of information gets out to people. And so a lot of the the information having to do with their economy and their stock market and these different metrics of success were considered to be not legitimate or at least very much fluffed up. These were pufferfish numbers that were made to look much bigger than they actually were. So the way to look at these new numbers that are coming out is to either say, well, it's a readjustment of what they've been telling us, and it's been something like this all along, but they've decided to finally show some of the true numbers, or, potentially worse, that things have gotten so bad that these are the new puffed-up numbers, and they are so bad that even when they try to make it look good, it still looks pretty horrible. Now you may have heard a bit about what's happening in the South China Sea. This has been the topic of many different think pieces and stories and analyses lately. And rightfully so, because it is a pretty substantial move for the Chinese government to try to take over this area or expand their aura of influence, their sphere of influence further out into the South China Sea. And essentially what that means is that they're saying, through means both official and unofficial, that this is their territory. This is a part of the ocean that is part of their territory. It's part of their cultural heritage, their government control, their their military influence. And as a result, they get the rights to the minerals there. They get first dibs on fishing. If anybody wants to pass through there, they have to check for China's permission. And that's a really big deal because a substantial portion of global trade goes through that area. And so if they gain control of it, if they become the de facto owners, the leaders, the policemen in that area, they have then replaced the U.S. as the naval police in that area. So even if it's not something where they would likely flex their muscles and, and tell people that they can't come in if they ask the fact that they're making other people ask to come in and use it is a statement. It is saying, we are expanding our sphere of influence. We may not be a global superpower, but regionally, we are the biggest badasses here. And so you better respect that. You got to ask our permission to use this stuff. And even more importantly, if we don't want you here, if we want to have the chair at the end of the table in all future trade deals, we get it by default. This doesn't necessarily seem like A huge deal at first, uh, particularly if you look at naval power and consider it to be kind of boring, right? It's not as flashy as like an Air Force battle. But controlling portions of the ocean, or at least being the dominant military force in different parts of the ocean, means that you kind of do write the rules there. And simply by moving around aircraft carriers, by moving around destroyers, you make a huge political statement. When the United States moved several vessels from the Atlantic over to the Pacific, it was considered to be a pretty massive statement that they assume the Asian subcontinent was going to be a hot zone in the coming century. Simply rearranging these pieces on the oceanic board is considered to be a massive statement because power is amplified when you control these trade zones, when you control these means of transporting all of these goods. We as people traveling, we think of travel as flying on a plane, typically or riding on a bus or riding on a train, taking a car. But most of the goods that are transported globally today are still transported by ship. And though that is slowly but surely changing, it's worth noting that if you have a ship on this global oceanic board, That means you control the ocean, it means you control the airspace over it, it means that you are the TSA security through which everybody else has to pass. And this is kind of what United States post-World War II global military control theory was predicated on. There was two main things, I would argue. I mean, people who are much better educated about this than I am could, could argue with this, but... I would argue that the two main focuses that allowed us to kind of become the dominant player in economics and politics and everything else that we became was the choice to dominate the naval scene, was to kind of take over the oceans and become the global policeman in that way, and then the choice to try to prevent the formation of another superpower. And that was something that came largely to fruition after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 80s and early 90s. The biggest existential threat that the U.S. faced in recent history, in probably its entire history, post-Civil War, was the Soviet Union. And everything that we've done since then has been kind of a fear-based response to that. We don't want the world to end, but even more selfishly, we don't want our nation and our values and the culture around it to end. And so when you look at a lot of the decisions that we've made, a lot of the wars that we've had or proxy wars that we've fought or the foreign leaders that we've usurped, in a lot of cases we weren't trying to take over land, we weren't trying to wrangle resources. In some cases, definitely, or in some cases that was the byproduct because of opportunistic people that were involved in those decisions or who helped make it happen. But a lot of these choices were more about stirring the pot Going into Iraq, a lot of military experts have argued, wasn't about trying to conquer Iraq. It wasn't about trying to take it over or rebuild it. It was about trying to scare the hell out of Iran. It was about trying to prevent the development of a caliphate. It was about stirring the pot enough so that everybody was at each other's throats and so that there would be chaos for the next couple of decades and so we wouldn't have to worry about it. I am not a military expert but the people that i read on this the people who tend to be military experts uh, a lot of them tend to think some version of this that american foreign policy our military policy especially but in some cases other aspects of our foreign policy as well is predicated on the idea that it is the moral decision to prevent the development the emergence of new superpowers because we are the only ones, according to this theory, that can be trusted with that type of power. I'm not going to get into the truth or potential truth of that statement. I don't think that there is a truth or potential truth. I think that is a purely subjective type of statement. I think that there's plenty of arguments to be made in a bunch of different directions around that, and I certainly don't think that there's ever been a perfect or completely Moral nation in the world, particularly because of the the flawed, uh, immoral people who tend to run these nations. But I bring that up because it explains so many of the choices that we've made, and it also explains kind of the bigger picture, the larger setting, the larger setup of what's happening with China now. To maintain that kind of control, to maintain the singular status of superpower in the world, and lacking the Soviet Union, as a good counterbalance, a good bogeyman. China has become the de facto stand-in. China has become the country that politicians and economic leaders and military leaders are able to point at and say, look, we need to stay frosty here. We really need to get on our game. We need to invest in the military. We need to invest in our relationships and build our defenses. Because if we rest on our laurels at all, these guys are going to Unseat us. We will be replaced. We can be replaced. And the usefulness of this narrative cannot be overstated. If you become a superpower and see yourself as a superpower and you believe you have nothing to worry about, you have lost the fear of the darkness, you have lost the fear of the jungle, you have lost the fear of any other nation threatening your existence, then you are less likely to make difficult decisions and less likely to suffer for a cause. And frankly, you're less likely to feel patriotism. You're less likely to look at yourself and the people around you as us. Because there's no them. There's no other to look over the fence at and to unify you. To say, look how similar we are. Look how different these crazy people are. Look how they're threatening our existence. And it's very, very difficult for anybody in control to get their population to follow along with them. If they don't have an other to show how different and how scary the rest of the world is and how much we need to unify and make sacrifices if we're going to survive. Now this is becoming ever more important. I, I would argue it's always been important. If you look at a lot of the propaganda from World War One, World War Two, even during the Cold War, it's very, very clear that this is happening. Uh, it's very, very clear that the people in charge will do what they can to draw lines to draw distinctions between people across the border. No matter how similar we are, no matter how many things we have in common, what needs to be emphasized are the differences because then they are able to rally us together and to make us feel like part of a tribe. And it's like sports teams at a certain point. We've got our logos, we've got our flags, they've got their logos, they've got their flags. We don't know why we hate them, but we do. And we do because it helps us unify. It helps us rally around what we perceive to be a common cause. This is an increasingly difficult argument for politicians to make, however, because we live in the future. We live in a time where we are largely a solid portion, about half of the planet is connected. We can reach out and talk to each other and see each other instantaneously. We can share our thoughts. We can share our photos of our surroundings. We have connections with people who in the past, even just a few decades ago, would have been absolute mysteries to us. And as a result of this, it's increasingly difficult for politicians, for people in charge in general, to get away with blanket statements about the other. Because a lot of us know people from across borders now. A lot of us, if we don't know them directly, we know of them, or we know somebody who knows them, or we've seen a video of them, or we follow them on Instagram. And the knee-jerk reaction that we should just fear these people because we've been told that they're different doesn't hold as much water as it used to. It's not as politically useful as it was back when these people were still mysterious, and back when they could tell us anything about them, directly or indirectly, about how different they are, about how horrible they are, about how the world will change against us if we allow them to take any kind of power. I think we're becoming more and more aware of our shared humanity. It's certainly not universal. This is not something that has pervaded all societies equally. But I do think that we're becoming more capable of looking around and seeing what works and what doesn't, and looking around at other people's societies and the way that other people do things, and making the same judgments. Still maybe saying, okay, well, I wouldn't want to live that way, but then looking at their food or their music or their technology or other aspects of their culture or the way their society operates and saying, well, that that would be kind of a cool thing to have, though. I wish we did it that way. This is inconvenient, for people who live by tribal rule, for people who keep us rallied around brand America or brand China, for people who demand that we love you know, our country, our flag, our logo, whatever it happens to be, out of brand loyalty, because we are supposed to love them and support any choices that they make regardless. And we're more likely, I think, to support and to love and care about a brand or a flag or a government when they're willing to change with the times as well and when they're willing to look around and say oh there's some pros and cons to this we made some mistakes here let's figure out how we can do it better looking around you can see that happening little by little but in a system such as ours uh, ours in in my case being here in the united states but i think most of the developed world actually it's a difficult statement to make publicly if you're in charge of anything that you've made a mistake and that you need to change something, or that our system needs to change, or that somebody else is doing something better than us. It's not popular, and particularly within a representative democratic system, which a lot of different countries, a lot of developed countries around the world have some variation on that. It's not a popular thing to say, and that means that you could lose your job if you say it, whether it's true or not, whether you believe it or not. And the result is that this system of trying to, you know, bang our own drum and trying to build up our own choices, whether they're correct or not, it's something that's been perpetuated, not necessarily because even the politicians want to do it, but because our entire system is predicated on making decisions and standing by them and choosing a side and standing by it and waving a flag and standing by it. And a lot of the conflicts looking around, looking around at the different military conflicts and looking at the different political conflicts and the economic conflicts, at their root, they come back to that concept. We've built a lot of systems that are not malleable enough to survive this sudden shift, this sudden awareness of each other, this sudden ability that we have to share ideas, and this sudden incentive that we have to not just be aware of those ideas that have been shared and to share our own, but to actually consider them, to like really give them a good listen and think, well, maybe, maybe things would be better, or at least we could try. This presumed conflict between China and the United States And I say presumed because it's something that we hear a lot about, but there isn't really a lot of conflict. It's it's still very much theoretical and convenient for both sides in a lot of ways, more than it is a reality. It's an excellent excuse for the people in charge because it allows them to clamp down and to reference tradition and to harden their shells rather than becoming more malleable in a time when everyone around them is seeking out malleability when their people are wanting change, wanting things to be new, wanting some evolutions, some iterations of the way things have been, this allows them to lock down and clamp down and say, no, 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 no. We can't do that right now. That's mutating in any way, changing in any way. Even if there's a potential benefit to it, this is not the time. Because if we lose ourselves now, we will give in to this other. We will give in to the enemy. We will give in to the people who would push us down Take away what we've got. Take away our birthright. I think if we all look to our collective past, we'll see that we have more in common than we have differences. We'll see China going through a lot of the birthing pains that we went through back in the day. And we'll see that they've come up with a lot of solutions that we didn't, and vice versa. I think we'll see that the idea of borders and the idea of These cultural disparities should not be lines in the sand, but should rather be things that we share with each other, that we encourage, that we offer, and that we hope to receive in return. I will note, though, that despite the fact that unfortunately all too often these differences and these perceived conflicts are used for very negative things like war or as an excuse to subjugate others who are different, there are also some positive aspects to it. I tend to think of our global society as an ecosystem like any other. And an ecosystem is strongest and most resilient when it has variety, when it has diversity, when it has different conflicting ways of surviving and doing things. What we tend to hear about are the negatives of these conflicts, of these different ideas ramming up against each other. And the people who have, for some reason, like so many of us, decided that we can't have all of these things existing at the same time, we have to choose one and kill off all the others. We need homogeny. We need everything to be the same. We cannot accept that different people might want different things, have different priorities. And that's simply not the case. If you really take a look at it, the idea that we all have to have the same religion or the same government or the same economic system, the same approach to military, the same approach to international trade. I mean, ideally, we have a lot of similarities in that people are treated well, whoever they happen to be. But the specifics of those systems, I don't think that they have to be the same. I think we're better off if they're not. I think ideally we have a lot of different systems that allow us then to see the pros and the cons in action and bumping up against each other. And we can choose for ourselves, but we can only choose for ourselves if we have the power to do so. And that means incentivizing the structures that we do have to catch up with the times, to be more malleable, to recognize that it's not confidence that causes somebody to solidify around existing ideas but self-consciousness to remember that it's not the strongest who survive but the most adaptive to change if we can make this work then we as a species will be a lot more rugged and a lot more likely to survive the potential and some that are already occurring disasters that are on the horizon There are a lot of big issues that we're going to be dealing with in the coming years. And it's unlikely that just one country, one culture will be capable of solving them all. We're going to need the entire species to work together on this. And so a mechanism of working together, of being able to maybe not believe the same things that everybody else believes, but at least respect those things enough to allow them to exist. This doesn't mean that we have to buy into everything that every culture does or that every government does. We don't have to fully embrace everything that's being done everywhere on the planet. But if we can look across those borders and respect other people for the value that they're providing, even if it's just the value of challenging the things that we're doing so that we're certain that we're doing the right things more often than not, then we'll be in a much better spot. We'll be in a much better position to handle these challenges that are emerging and then any challenges that emerge after that as well. And so when you... Here are these fabricated conflicts, or something that seems like it might be that. These conveniently manufactured geopolitical situations. Just keep all of that in mind. Keep the big picture in mind. Because although in some cases things do come to war, and we do end up seeing major global powers become usurped and replaced by others, and that there are a lot of things that could cause the complete Downfall of human society as we know it. But that's probably not what's happening. In most cases, what we're seeing is reality show style conflict that is being produced by somebody who benefits from that. Whether it's a website or a newspaper or a magazine that's manufacturing it as clickbait, that's not the case here, I don't think, because it actually does give a lot of good context, but it very much does happen or if it's a politician who's doing it to try to scare people into supporting them as the stronger candidate, or whether it's somebody just repeating an old wives' tale, or I guess a a new wives' tale, a new storyline that is lacking in factual information but sounds really good in terms of getting us to unify around common ideology. Recognize that we don't need to do that in order to unify. And recognize that in a lot of cases what we're being sold is not valuable information that will help us survive a coming conflict, but is in fact one more advertisement from a brand that is trying to get us to support its every action, without question and without threatening its dearly held status quo. There is, of course, a lot more to say on this subject. I'm pretty sure that will be the case in every single episode. There are just so many perspectives from which to view every story, and so many different tangents that you can go down. And the most difficult thing in preparing for this episode, but I'm guessing it will be the most difficult thing in preparing for every episode, is choosing which of these paths to take. If you're interested in discussing this topic further, or interested in discussing different angles of this topic, I very much encourage you to go check out the Facebook group, which is located at facebook.com slash letsknowthings. Just remember to keep your conversation polite. Feel free to disagree with me or with anyone else there, but do it politely, civilly. Jerks will be gleefully booted, while intelligent, mutually respectful conversation and questions will be celebrated. So I told myself that I would only start a podcast if I could come up with a compelling framework. You'll have to let me know if you think that this is something that I should keep producing. I'm enjoying it, and I hope to continue enjoying it, but I want to make sure that it's something that other people are getting value out of as well. So if you enjoyed it, you can show your support by stopping over at iTunes and leaving a review, or leaving a review wherever you happen to listen to this episode. You can also share it with your friends and loved ones. Or you can go to letsknowthings.com where you will find a contribution section. where you can very easily, if you like, contribute a dollar per episode. Or you can go to colin.io and find the full list of books that I've written. And purchasing one of those also helps support me and support the show. Thank you very, very much. And I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.